Let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone and our defense is sure. Would you teach us new things this evening? Remind us of things we may have forgotten and show us once again what it is to have you dwell in our midst and how through the blood of Jesus alone can we draw near to you. And in so doing, we have complete confidence that you will draw near to us. We pray asking for your help in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned this morning, this series through Exodus has been going on since before I arrived two years ago. If you recall, Pastor Ross preached through Exodus 15 and uh, I think did that for at least a year. And when I got here, I picked up in the evening service, he had been doing the morning, but picked up in the evening service with Exodus 16. And we've taken some breaks here and there and a few small different series and a little lighter schedule over the summer. And now, two years later, we come to the end of Exodus. Whenever I get to the end of a big book like this, I go back and count up how many sermons I've preached. And I promise I did not plan it this way. But when I went back to count up how many sermons I've done here on Exodus, it is an even 40. Wow, what a great planning on my part. 40 40 chapters in Exodus, 40 sermons from Exodus 16 through 40. And tonight we come to the conclusion in chapters 39 and 40. Uh, You can hardly live in this country these days without hearing something about the Game of Thrones. If you want to know what I think about it, you can Google Kevin DeYoung Game of Thrones and find my very frowny face about it. I've never seen it and don't plan to see it, but I know from social media that tonight is the the last episode, and uh, I have gone out of my way to express some dismay that Christians have watched the show from what I've heard a great number of scenes that are inappropriate but this isn't a sermon about that except to say that whatever happens in the finale I promise you that this finale is much more important and much more life altering chapter 39 and 40 from the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. And they hammered out gold leaf and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns and into the fine twine linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges and the skillfully woven band on it was on the piece with it and made like it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now just pay attention to how many times we have that refrain that we've already seen at the end of the first and second paragraphs. They made the onyx stones and clothes and settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet, according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. 
It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth when doubled. And they set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle was the first row. And the second row, an emerald, sapphire, and diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, and agate, and amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, and onyx, and jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. There were 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. Thus they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in the front to the lower parts of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses." He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses." They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen, and the sash of fine twine linen, and of blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar, and its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils. The basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gates of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. 
And you shall put it in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screens for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he put in the place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. This final section in Exodus answers one big question... And leaves one big cliffhanger. Here is the one big question. The question is this. Will God really be with us? Maybe that's a question you're asking tonight. For any number of reasons. Overwhelmed at work. Exhausted at home. Sleepless nights. Unexplained symptoms. Fearful diagnosis. Feeling abandoned by family or friends. 
Certainly, if you haven't felt that now, you will feel it at some time in your life, that nagging thought in the middle of the night, can I really trust this God? Is he really going to be with me? This was certainly the question that was uppermost in the Israelites' mind. If you go back to Exodus chapter 1, you remember how they got into this mess that there arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who did not know and remember Joseph. And so he became fearful of the people and their great numbers and he sent to wipe them out. And he put them into bitter bondage and slavery. And at the end of chapter 2, we read... During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. That's what they had been asking at the beginning of this book. Where is God? Does he see? Does he know? Does he care? And at the end of chapter 2, we read God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Maybe someday we'll come back and get that sermon at the end of chapter 2. Because at the end of chapter 2, God hadn't done anything yet. No plagues, no commandments, no Red Sea, no manna, no quail. All we know at the end of chapter 2 is that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. He is going to fulfill, in the rest of the book, the promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and chiefly so to Abraham in Genesis 17. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be with you. Yes, he promised land. Yes, he promised a son. Yes, he promised a great nation. But underneath it all was that promise, I will be with you. And so he hears their cries. He raises up a deliverer. He speaks to them from the burning bush. And you remember in chapter 3, he tells them two things. I will be with you, and I am who I am. The God who makes himself known as the I am is the God who is there. And so the Lord sends Moses to Pharaoh with one unbreakable message, let my people go. And you remember, it wasn't just let my people go, but that they might serve me and worship me in the wilderness. It wasn't just freedom. It wasn't some sort of human autonomy they were after. It was freedom from slavery and service to Pharaoh that they might be, as it were, slaves and servants to God. God would be with them. And throughout this book, we've seen the presence of God symbolized by the glory cloud, protecting and guiding them. Chapter 13, the pillar of cloud to lead them by day, the pillar of fire by night. Chapter 14, it keeps them safe as the Red Sea is parted and protects them from the Egyptians. Chapter 16, the glory appeared to them in the wilderness. You remember in chapter 24, when Moses meets with the Lord on the mountain, we read, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Throughout this book, God has been represented as cloud and fire. And Moses meets with the Lord on the mountain 
And we see it again with the episode of the golden calf. We read in chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The presence of God has been this somewhat mysterious, unpredictable cloud of fire and smoke off in the distance, off limits for everyone but Moses. There it is hemming the Egyptians in. There it is in front of you leading you to your destination. But only Moses can go up the mountain and enter into the cloud and there meet with God. And now we have this cloud, this fire, which is going to move into the neighborhood. We've seen, and maybe you even thought it again tonight with one last reading through these long chapters, that the tabernacle can feel sort of boring and tedious, maybe unimportant. But the instructions of the tabernacle and then the building of the tabernacle are absolutely essential to the storyline of Exodus. Because this is where God is going to dwell. We read in Exodus 29, verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them, I and the Lord their God. Earlier in the first instructions for the tabernacle, chapter 25, verse 8, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Why do we have two sets of instructions for the tabernacle? Because the building of the tabernacle is interrupted by the idolatry of the golden calf. So think about it. God is giving them a tent for the presence of the divine name And then you have the golden calf. And what is the golden calf about? A counterfeit of God's presence. When Aaron says, behold, O Israel, these are the gods that delivered you out of Egypt. You want his presence? I mean, there's a reason why it's delivered twice and why it's interrupted. God says, I'm going to live among you. Here are all the elaborate, precise instructions for my house. And when Moses is ready to come down and give them the instructions, what does he find? But they had decided to do things their own way. No, no, no. We, we, we know how to represent God. We know what sort of God we want. We want this God that we can see, not a God of cloud and fire and shrouded in mystery and in a tent and in a box. We want a God like all the other nations have, a bull, some sort of Egyptian deity. And so we know what happens. God punishes them for their disobedience, but in an act of Repentance, the people then see their sin. We read that they strip themselves of their ornaments, probably some idolatrous decorations to these gods. And then you remember when they give all of the the gold for the tabernacle. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in great detail in chapter 36. And the people were giving even more than was necessary for the construction of the tabernacle and all the artifacts. They had given gold for the calf And now they give gold for the building of the tabernacle. You see, it's not that God was somehow in want or in need. Giving is not about God getting what he needs. It's about God getting our hearts in order. And most importantly, this this tabernacle section is repeated twice, almost verbatim, to show how after the failure of the golden calf, now how meticulously... 
The people obeyed the commandments of God. I mentioned at the beginning of this reading to pay attention to that refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. How many times in chapter 39 do we read that something was made as the Lord commanded Moses? Seven times. Verse 1, 5, 7, 21, 26, 29, and 31. And in addition to those seven, there are three summary sections in verse 32, 42, and 43. Thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So seven times do we have in the telling of the construction that refrain, and then three summary sections. Do you know how many times in chapter 40 we read that the tabernacle was erected as the Lord commanded Moses? Seven. Verse 19, 21, 23, 25, 27, 29, and 32. You think someone knew what they were doing when Moses wrote this down or the the Spirit of God inspiring this seven times in chapter 39, seven times in chapter 40. And just for fun, if we went to Leviticus chapter 8 where we read that Aaron and his sons were consecrated, that's where they're finally consecrated as priests. Here we have their garments. There they're consecrated as priests. And we have the same refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. You want to guess how many times it's repeated there in Leviticus 8? Seven. Moses, and more importantly, the Spirit of God, is making a point. Now, seven, we hear, is a biblical number. It's not some some mystery Bible code, and this reveals new secrets to you. But it's just the Bible's way of, of saying a number of holiness, a number of perfection, all of it. What we're meant to see is that word for word, the Israelites obeyed their God. The, this rebellious people who could not wait for a matter of days when Moses was on the mountain and said, as for this Moses, we don't even know what's happened to him. We got to get a golden calf. And Aaron says, I don't know. They threw it in. Fire, boom. There's a golden calf. I don't know what happened. Now they are meticulous in their obedience over and over. As the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. Did you also notice that this tabernacle, the completion of the tabernacle is a kind of recreation. So look at the end of chapter 39. Does this language sound familiar to you? We have in verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. Or we read at the end of chapter 39, verse 43, and Moses saw all the work and behold They had done it as the Lord has commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is very much what we read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That the Lord looked out on everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And we read that the Lord then blessed the people on the seventh day, made it holy. We read in Genesis 2 verse 3. We are meant to hear echoes of this creation story again in chapter 40, verse 33. So Moses finished the work. Just like in creation, God would finish his work and survey it and say, all is done and bless them. So now Moses can look out and see that the people have done all the work, just as God has commanded. A new kind of creation where God will dwell with his people And so we come to the completion of the tabernacle 
which can seem like an afterthought. All of the exciting things have happened a long time ago in the book. I mean, the Red Sea, and I mean, the, 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 the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston would be even longer if they had to do all the tabernacle sections. I mean, we've seen all of the exciting things with the plagues, and then the book drags on with the tabernacle. But that's not how they would have understood it, nor how we should understand it. Far from being a mundane afterthought, this is what the whole book has been about. How do we know that God is with us? Well, now we see the covenant promises have not been forgotten. Will God still lead us? Does God still love us? Does he love us when we're slaves in Egypt? Does he love us when we're rebels building the golden calf? Will he still be with us? And here we see the grand and glorious answer that yes, he will make a home The cloud came down. Look at the last paragraph in the book. Surely it is significant that in this final section, the word cloud is mentioned in every verse. You see it in verse 34. Then the cloud. Verse 35. The cloud settled on it. Verse 36. Whenever the cloud was taken up. Verse 37. But if the cloud was not taken up. Verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord clearly In the very last section, we are meant to be focused upon this glory cloud, which is the the theophany, the representation of God coming to dwell with his people. What the people could not approach on the mountain, they now have living among them so that everyone can see. You probably missed the very last verse, 38. What remarkable good news that is. Remember, the mountain was all quarantined and set off and don't go near it, you're going to die and only some people can go up this far and then the the chosen, the elders can go up that far and only Moses can go up into the mountain. And we read in verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. They get to see it. It's not up there on on the mountain, quarantined, set apart. None of you can be too close. This God is going to come and now has dwelt with them. The completion of the tabernacle represents the coming down of God's glory from unapproachable Sinai into a humble tent in the midst of the camp. Don't miss what a big deal this is. What What if Cam Newton moved into your neighborhood? Well, first of all, you'd think, I must live in a pretty nice neighborhood if the quarterback for the Panthers moves in. But what if you weren't? You were in just a, a normal neighborhood or, or a poor neighborhood, and he moved in anyways. Even if you don't like football, you sort of heard, well, there is a football team in, in Charlotte, and maybe heard who the quarterback is. When people start kind of whispering, did you know who bought a house here? You'd walk by the house and you'd maybe think, I think I see him mowing the lawn. Now, why would he be mowing the lawn? Now, you'd be, you'd be spotting him. You'd tell your friends and neighbors. You'd show people around and you'd point out, well, do you see that house? Do you know who lives here? Do you know who lives in my neighborhood? And here they have God moving in. And not just any God. Not some weak territorial deity, not some petty, capricious tyrant, but the God they dared not look upon or listen to lest they die. This holy, transcendent, I am who I am, God has come in his eminence 
that his transcendence might be in their midst. In his commentary, John Currid quotes from a man named Robert Stopford, who was in the British Navy with Admiral Nelson. And he said at one point in a letter, we are half starved and otherwise inconvenienced by being so long out of port. But our reward is that we are with Admiral Nelson. This man would feel that about his commanding officer, how much more that we in whatever difficulties, whatever trials can say, yes, it is difficult. Yes, we have been long out of port. Yes, we are hungry, but we get to be with God. How much better that God has made himself known and has moved in to the neighborhood. And so we see that this conclusion to Exodus answers that one big question. Will God be with us? Oh, yes, he will be with you. But there's a cliffhanger. There is a problem yet to be resolved. After all of this, look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Now, this is not later, Moses, you can't go into the promised land for some sin. No, it just says, as a matter of fact, the cloud settles on it, and Moses cannot come in. On one level, this makes sense. This is God's abode. The builder of the house doesn't get to live in the house after the work is done. He doesn't get a key to come in whenever he wants. He built the house for someone else, turns it over to the rightful owners. But, but on the other hand, if, if anyone can approach this house, surely it is this great and mighty man, Moses, who with his staff led the people from Egypt and, and stood before Pharaoh and called down plagues from heaven and stood with his arms that the Red Sea might part and then that they might be victorious in battle. This Moses, surely, who has endured so much, this Moses who dwelt an intimate relationship with God that no one else had, surely this Moses could come. He's already experienced this kind of intimacy going into the cloud on Mount Sinai, but now he is left deliberately on the outside looking in. Why? Well, think about the other time in Exodus where the presence of the Lord barred entry to a house. Can you think of it? It was during the night of Passover. There, God was keeping his people safe on the inside. Now he is keeping his people safe on the outside. We have a perfect representation here in these two chapters of God's transcendence and his imminence. We have a God who is near, who condescends to live among us, but he is not cozy. His permanent presence is more than can be handled by even the holiest of men. See, verse 35 will not make sense to most people that we know, and maybe even to some of us, because we scarcely have any idea what it means for God to be holy. Yeah, yeah, we sort of know it. We sing it, holy, 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 but he's, he's, he's cozy, and he, he loves us, and we're casual, and he's just glad when we come and we pay attention to him. No, no, no. The cloud rests upon the tabernacle. Will God be with us? Yes. That question is answered. But here is the cliffhanger that's yet to be resolved. God will dwell in our midst. But how? 
can we have access to this God? Even Moses does not have access to this God. And you see, the Spirit of God is ending this movie called Exodus. And he is setting them up for an exciting sequel. For after Exodus comes Leviticus. And look at chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, what will happen there is the Israelites will spend another 48 days at Sinai. Numbers 10, 11 says the cloud lifted on the 20th day of the second month of the second year. So for 48 days, God will speak to Moses and he will give him all the instructions laid out in Leviticus 1, verse 2 through Numbers 10, verse 10. And if you know your Bibles, you know that those chapters are filled with many commands about many things. But chiefly, God will instruct his people about one thing. One thing. How to make atonement for sin. It's no coincidence that Exodus 40 and the, the, the resting of the glory cloud on the tabernacle, God dwelling in the midst of his people, it's no coincidence that it's followed right up with Leviticus 1 and laws for a burnt offering. And many of us read through our Bibles and we think, oh, I thought Exodus got kind of boring at the end. And then we get to Leviticus. Oh, boy. Do you see the connection? Yes, I will be in the midst of you. Yes, I will dwell with you and you will be my people and I will be your God. And yet Moses can't even enter. Do we have access to this God? Turn the page. Part three, Leviticus. I will make a way. We need a sacrifice if we are going to draw near to God. Think of Leviticus as part three of this best-selling trilogy, which turns into a quintilogy or something with five books to Numbers and Deuteronomy. And not even Numbers and Deuteronomy will tie up all the loose ends because making a way is about more than just a goat here and a lamb there. We won't finally see it in Leviticus or in the rest of the Pentateuch because those books are themselves pointing to an even greater sequel. The Christ who is to come. For he will be the fulfillment of all these things. He will answer the question, is God with us? And he will solve this final cliffhanger. If he is with us, can we draw near to him? And we will see that he is our Passover lamb our divine lawgiver, our manna in the wilderness, our water in the desert, our life-giving rock, our high priest, our mediator, our intercessor, our mercy seat, our bloody sacrifice, our holy tabernacle. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. And the curtain would be torn in two. Access now for all who call upon the name of Christ. And even more, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us so we can be a temple of the living God. In Christ, therefore, we have not only access to God and atonement with God and can see the glory of God, but we have the presence of God living in us. So pay attention to your Bibles, even to the boring parts. Because there is much more going on here than meets the eye. 
And God, the supreme author of all of scripture, knew just what he was doing. As the end of Exodus and the great climax here would turn the page to Leviticus and then to Numbers and to Deuteronomy. And finally, some centuries later, to a virgin who would give birth and call his name Jesus. For he alone would save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book, for all that you have taught us in it. We thank you that in Jesus you have drawn near to us, to tabernacle among us, and that in Jesus we have access, even greater access than Moses had. We have seen more glory than Moses saw. We know more of your truth and grace than anyone in the tabernacle. And we give thanks that you have given us the great privilege of knowing Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.